I'm Esther Almar. Welcome. You're listening to The Consent Convo on The Spin. We continue to talk with our brothers on consent. The Consent Convo is a public conversation campaign on consent. It is an emotional justice project in partnership with Ebony.com. And throughout October, I've been talking with black men about how they learned about consent, from whom, how that learning shaped their relationship to their body, sex, power, men, and women. This program is brought to you by the African American Public Radio Consortium. I'm joined today by Kiesi Lehman. Kiesi Lehman is a writer. He's the author of two powerful books, his novel, Long Division, and his nonfiction book, How to Slowly Kill Yourself and Others in America. His memoir, Heavy, will be out in 2017. He has had more than 30 essays published in the last two years in a range of publications, including Color Lines, Ebony, New York Times, The Nation, ESPN, The Fader, Guernica, NPR, The LA Times, LitHub, Esquire, Guardian, Ms. Magazine, and Gorka. Welcome, welcome, Kiese. Hey. Consent. We're asking men to speak out and stand up. You're a survivor of sexual violence. You are one of that number, cited by Rain, the Rape, Abuse and Incest National Network that says one in every 10 victims of sexual assault or rape is a boy or man. That number is deeply disturbing. It comes with being a survivor and then negotiating a masculinity that makes being a victim of anything a no-no. So in this month's closing conversation, I'm talking with survivors of sexual violence, men and women. In a 2013 National Crime Victimization Survey, 40,000 households were asked about rape and sexual violence. The survey reported that 38% of incidents were against men. And recent analysis of the Bureau of Justice Statistics data revealed that 46% of male victims reported a female perpetrator. How does being a survivor shape your relationship to your body? What has that meant for you within a masculinity that reveres aggression and is repulsed by notions of victimhood. What does consent mean to and for you? How did you learn about it? What did your 19-year-old self know and learn? Who taught you? What did they teach you and how did their teaching shape your relationship to yourself, to sex, to your body, to power, to men, to women? What were the notions of masculinity that surrounded you and how did they impact your understanding of consent? What have you had to unlearn to create healthier, loving relationships. And looking back, what would you tell your 15 or 14-year-old self? Casey Lehman, let's talk consent and a range of those issues. Your thoughts? Thank you for having me. I, like most people, I, didn't, I don't think I really learned about consent, what we call consent or the word, until I was in college. I think as a young person growing up in Mississippi, I talk about this often, you know, we, we, I got to talk a lot about really about, you know, what I needed to do to survive as a, you know, young kind of big black man. But nobody ever talked about consent. Nobody talked about rape. I didn't even get the sex talk. You know, I got 
some version of that from my friends. So if I, if I push it, I think I learned about the notion of consent from slightly older black men, um, music that I listened to. And that word was never, was never used. It was, if you have sex with the, with a woman, you know, that was right around the time people were starting to say no means no. But but none of my friends would ever say that. They'd be like, you know, it was never like, did she say no? It was all just like, did she let you? You know, so like, when I think about it now, I think did she let you was like the kind of clumsy version of consent that people around where I was from talked about. As a kid, I was sexually abused by one of the women who took care of me, one of my mother's students. She took, she was a babysitter. This was probably between nine and like 10. And also sexually abused by an older woman who was really, really close to me. And, you know, Lord knows we didn't talk about consent. But the scary thing about all of that is that at the time, it felt like I wasn't kissing other girls or anything. It felt like love. In my heart, I felt like those two women were my girlfriend. I didn't ever initiate anything with them, but I got really happy when they initiated things with me. And when those things stopped, I got sad. And most importantly, when I saw them with other men, I got like incredibly heartbroken. So I didn't understand what's going on with my body. I didn't understand what they were doing. I didn't understand why what felt like love sometimes felt like dying. Yeah, so I'm sure consent has something to do with all of that. We just never were taught the word. I definitely wasn't taught that I could say stop or no to those women. But I will say when I started to be like physically and sexually intimate with women, maybe because of what happened with women in my life regarding sexuality and intimacy, I was very, I mean, I, I still, I, I think the same kind of pattern. I, you know, I never, ever initiated anything. If anybody was remotely, like, uncomfortable, I would want to stop. I'd always want to stop, actually, because I just never wanted to hurt anybody, and I was always much more comfortable with initiating and doing stuff with women initiating and pushing doing what they wanted and and I felt like when that happened that's even even as I as I moved from an adolescent to a you know a teenager to a young man I always thought okay that means that the person really really likes me so now you're a survivor and you're now getting older and engaging in sexual activity and one of the things that has come up again and again as we've been having this conversation is a lot of people have mentioned the no means no campaign. And that right. has been the way that, that the public discourse around the notion of consent comes up. It's no means no. It's how do you tell men not to um, sexually assault um, women or boys or other men, um, tell women to find various ridiculous ways to prevent sexual assault. And one of the things we're doing with the consent convo is asking a different question, and that is, when you have said yes, what informs the yes? Why have you said yes? And how did being a survivor shape what yes meant to you and so therefore your relationship to um, sex and to your body? I find it hard to tease out what being a survivor informed versus what just being of this culture informed. But I, I will say that I'm writing about this in this book but, you know, after those physical interactions and assaults and abusive interactions, I call them abusive interactions with, like, you know, a slightly older girl and a much older woman, you know, I, I would just always eat, you know? And so, and my family, like, loves to eat my family. So 
all black women, and they all have histories of sexual violence, too. I can just say, like, as I got older and I started to have sexual relationships with women, you know, I would say yes almost to anything, but for the longest time, like, I wouldn't say no, but if they tried to, you know, if they were like, can we take off your shirt? I would feel, like, very uncomfortable about taking off my shirt. And even when I was, like, incredibly, incredibly good shape, there was just still, like, a just a level of uncomfortableness. But I never said no. I would just, like, not do something. You know what I'm saying? I wouldn't just say, can I? You know, if can I kiss you or something like that, I would, be, I would say, do you want me to kiss you? Do you want me to take off your shirt? So it was, you know, it was intimate, and, and there was some pleasure in those experiences for sure. But I was very, like, worried during that time that I would be, I just didn't want to hurt anybody. And I didn't want anybody doing things that they didn't want to do. But in this terrible way, I was much more comfortable doing things that I sort of didn't want to do because I wanted the person and the people to like me. And actually, I think the sexual abuse of history made, I mean, again, or sexual abuse of culture made me much more intimately and sexually like competitive because all, at the end of the day, I just wanted the person who liked me to like me. I would want to please them. So whatever they wanted to do, like, just let me know. And, I, and so some, I think somehow that too is, I don't know if, I don't think that, I don't know if that's violent, but I don't think that that is like healthy just like completely, you know, I just wanted to make sure they would only like me because I don't know if this is true, but, you know, because when I was a child, that was what hurt the most. Like, you know, the the stuff that those people did to me eventually was hurt and was terrifying, but the part that was really terrifying was that it made me feel like I was the most special person in the world. And then I see them with other, like, older, older men, men who they should have been with sexually. And I saw both of them, too, be abused by men. And I just always wanted to be, like, not like that. I want to be special. I want to be the only one to be with me. I think I carried that into adulthood and my adult relationship with sexuality. And I didn't change it at all until I started, like, writing about it. And the thing is, in my life, I talked to a lot of, you know, not a lot, but the partners that I had. I was writing about this the other day. Nearly all of them talked to me at some point about being survivors, and I just never could. I just never willed myself to talk to them about what happened to me. You know, I was a listener and I listened, but when they asked me, like, do you understand? You know, I never was like, I definitely understand. I don't understand exactly what you went through, but here's what I went through. Like, I was ashamed of what of what happened to me and, like, very eagerly listening and asking questions about what happened to other women. So, yeah, I don't think that was too healthy for me. So, on that shame piece, talk about the way our current kind of iteration of masculinity, particularly it kind of reveres aggression and is repulsed by anything that is really part of any other spectrum of emotionality. So the idea of permission, all the words that consent means, which is to agree to, to allow, to yield, to sanction, all these words, which is what consent means. Talk about how the shame then shaped you as a man and shaped your masculinity. Push myself to really think about how I embody, like, in some way, like, traditional notions of masculinity, like, and how I really mess with consent. I think about this a lot. I think as a young adult, you know, I, I've asked women that I've been sexually intimate with if they thought there was any violent sexual relationships in, in our lives t- with each other. And, and bar none, like, they've all said no. But what I have learned is that, like, or maybe even with or maybe because of what I experienced, 
I still think early on in my life I was kind of I was really invested in a sort of deception. You know what I mean? Like not telling partners the entire truth and then not telling partners the entire truth they would want to be with me or like me more. I think in some ways that is sexually violent because, you know, if I had partners be like, we wouldn't have, I wouldn't have wanted to do with you what we did if you would have told me the entire truth. And I think, again, like, that's partially because of my experience with sexual violence, but I also think that the culture encourages that a lot in men for sure. You know, the notion of tell women whatever you think they want to hear. And it wasn't tell women whatever they want to hear to be sexually intimate because, like, the sex I would always often just be still afraid of because I didn't want them to think I was gross or anything. It's like, let me tell this woman, these women whatever they want to hear so ultimately they'll like me more than they'll like some other guy. And, you know, when people, grown people like each other, a number of them want to have sex. So, like, I was saying things that weren't true, which were leading to people wanting to have sex with me. And then when we wanted to have sex, you know, like, I would, you know, try to be very, like, successful, you know, like, really good at, at sex. But I was just hiding so much. And ultimately, those women wouldn't have wanted to do a lot of what they did. And I've been telling them the truth about, one, my experience, what my relationships were with other women. So I just think this sexual culture that we're part of, and partially, I'm sure, some of my experience with sexual abuse, um, made it really easy for me to lie to myself and lie to other people. And and those lies ultimately encouraged people to do things with their bodies that they wouldn't do, which I now know. I knew that was wrong then, but now I think it's a kind of violence. I know it's a kind of violence. Who do you become then if you tell a woman the whole truth about being a survivor of sexual violence and the ways it shaped you? You talked about the shame. Sometimes it felt like love. Sometimes you felt like dying. There was violence, the competitiveness, the jealousy. Who do you become when you tell a woman that whole truth as a man? Who do you become? Initially, I felt like you became less than. I felt like you became literally less of a man. I felt like you became someone who needed to have a number of conversations with people before anything else could happen. And I think in this way, I just felt like I became scary, you know? I'd heard and read about men being sexually abused by, like, other men in communities or, you know, uncles and things like that. But I never, like, even coming up, I I rarely read about where boys and men were. And actually, like, you know, when boys and men talked about it, it would always be like, man... Really, be like, how, you know, an older, fine woman couldn't sexually assault us because that's what we're supposed to want. And I was conflicted, too, because, like, when I experienced a lot of it at the moment, it felt pleasurable, and it also felt like dying, but it felt pleasurable, too. So I think it definitely, like, gives control, which is all about, me. mean, masculinity is all about control and, like, granting this sort of control over to someone else. Uh, not just someone else, but granting this kind of control over to another woman and letting her know a big part of who I've been, a big part of who I am, a big part of why I'm scared, a big part of why I kind of shirk from touch, um, a big part of why sex is so important to me, but also it's just such a terrifying space, a big part of why I I ask every time, do you want to do this? Do you want to do this? Do you want to do this? Shut up. You don't have to say that. It just made clear what I think was abundantly clear, which is that I was kind of like emotionally like not so well, but also just sexually, more than sexually awkward, just like kind of sexually like just always scared. And, you know, scared and masculinity in some way go hand in hand, but on the surface, not so much. So then closing question, what do you need to unlearn 
in order to have a healthier, more loving engagement for yourself so that what feels like death and love, the conflation of pleasure and death, becomes more of an association of pleasure for you? I don't know if we ever completely unlearn things. I'm really learning now that any sort of love that is shrouded in deception ain't love and often is abusive. So I can be abusive to myself by not telling the truth about who I've been, what my imagination, the links of my imagination, you know, where I've been, what I've done with my body, what's been done to my body. I, I realize now that if I don't have the start of those many conversations, I don't think I can be in a healthy sexual relationship with myself or definitely with any woman. And I didn't know that. I just didn't know that. And so I've been doing that in my writing. I've been encouraging young men to do that. And really, I've just been hoping that when I do that with my partner, that, you know, as much as she wants, she will listen and she will give of herself and that maybe we can enter into these spaces. And really, these spaces are often bedrooms. And, you know, these bedrooms, they're just haunted with stories of sexual violence. And then sexual the stories are just like, they're not, they're not the same story every time. Like, you know, like they may have the same violence at its core. But I'm just trying to talk through these violences to really think about what pleasure feels like and what pleasure looks like connected to like these histories of trauma and violence, but also separate from. And so, like, you know, it's just as hard for me to talk about, like, you know, you know can we talk about what really brings us the, much, as the most pleasure as it is to talk about what has really brought us the most harm and trauma? But those are conversations that actually become sexually attractive to me. You know, as I get older, like, those are the conversations that are hard and terrifying, but so often pleasurable, not necessarily because they end in sex, but they end in me seeing myself and they end in letting somebody else see me and they end in me seeing other people. You know, and in some ways, sex is a communicative act. Can it should be about a lot, but it should kind of maybe be when you want it to be about, like, feeling and seeing parts of other people you didn't know. So for me, it's hard to do that if there's no talk about where we've been with violence and sex and where we want to go with violence, sex, and pleasure. And I'm learning that from a lot of folk who, who call themselves black feminists. And I'm learning that through pushing through my art. And I'm learning that with this project because I talk to a lot of women in my family about what they experience. So I'm working, but for most of my life, I wasn't. I was just like scared going through the motion. And now I feel like I'm being and seeing myself a bit more and allowing myself to speak and see other people and, I think that's part of the work, but it's hard every day. Every day, I'm like, I don't want to talk about this with anybody. Even this morning, I was like, I love Esther. I don't want her to, I hope we don't have to talk about this. But, you know, when you do, it works, and it's love, and I know it. And so I saw, you know, I think if we love each other and love ourselves, we're going to be better than if we don't. So I'm trying. Mm, I hear that. I hear that. I'm Kiss A. Layman. You're listening to the Consent Convo. Consent is swag. Consent is smart. And smart is sexy. That was great. Thanks, Kiss A. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. The Consent Convo is an emotional justice project. It's a public conversation campaign on consent in partnership with Ebony.com. And we are having it with men and women. It's a call to create a consent positive environment to stand up and speak out. Stand up,
Subscribe to The Spin on iTunes and check out ebony.com every Thursday for The Consent Convo, a public conversation campaign on consent. I'm your host, Esther Armour. We about to drop, we about to drop, yeah. I got moxie, I'm so damn foxy. Industry try to block me like cops and paparazzi. Those that don't copy, just copy properly. This program has been brought to you by the African American Public Radio Consortium, NPR Distribution, and the Public Radio Satellite System.